0: And I love it when Kenley sings. I have had the opportunity to know her since she was a little girl uh, when TJ and Brandy came to our church and she was through our student ministry. She told me uh, this summer that she was the last group of kids that I graduated who were in our student ministry from 6th through 12th grade. And so when she graduated out, that was our last year as student pastor, and it makes me feel so old that she is holding her baby on the back row of the church. It's just kind of wild. And so I I love it. I love it when she sings. Just says, I've gotten to be around that. And she, matter of fact, we saw some, uh, those of you who know what time hop is, it just kind of reminds you of how old you are. It's an app on your phone that pulls up all your old memories. And and one of those memories was uh, Kenley helping lead worship at a Panama City uh, beach camp that we went to years and years ago. And I just, man, I looked through that crowd and I thought, golly, I am incredibly old. And so, uh, on that note, we are on another uh, th- topic this morning, but it's really the same. I, I told you guys I'd kind of planned on doing the Lord's Supper this morning, but uh, through the schedules and stuff, I decided to push that another couple of weeks. And so, This morning, I am calling this morning a bonus message. And I know you guys are really excited about having an extra message from me. We've been working through the past, the present, and the promise of salvation. And this morning, I'm just adding an extra one on there called the preparation. And because when we think about bonuses, everybody loves bonuses, right? You love that extra check that you maybe weren't expecting, maybe a perk or maybe even a little trip that you win that can be a bonus. I was looking this week, uh, Bryce Harper. I don't know if you know who Bryce Harper is last year. 2019. He's an outfielder for the Philadelphia Phillies. He signed a contract, a 13-year contract for $330 million. That's the second largest contract in sports history. For 13 years, he's going to get paid $330 million. And when he signed it, he got a $20 million signing bonus. That's incredible. I can't even wrap my head around that. I'm at a point in my life where when I go to Chick Fil A and I order an eight-piece chicken nugget and I get nine, I am pumped about it. Okay, that's my kind of bonus, right? And so this morning we're going to have a bonus message, and I'm sure some of y'all are thinking, I'll rather take the chicken nugget. But you're going to hear, you're here, you're going to hear it, and we're going to work our way through it because as we've been working through uh, the past, the present, and the promise of salvation, we've been talking about those in in kind of correlation to what salvation is, and we. We've used our big church words of justification, sanctification, and glorification. Well, uh, in all of that, we've talked about how salvation is solely based off what Jesus has done for us and nothing that we can do to earn that there's nothing that we can do to be good enough for that it's all about what he has done and so when you see this last little slide title you think the preparation well if it's all about what jesus done what can we do to prepare and i'm so thankful that our friend peter answers that for us and you guys who've been here over the last oh it's almost been a month now we've been talking about this uh... you can see that uh... we were in first peter chapter one uh... and we really kind of stuck through verse three through nine, and that was kind of our framework for the past three messages that we talked about through this. But what he talks about next, I think, is the next step for us. Once we understand all that we understand about salvation and uh, the process of salvation, then the next is just as important, and I believe speaks right to what we are going to talk about this morning. So if you've got your Bible... 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going, to read, uh, we're going to read a couple of different verses here, but we'll kind of chunk it out. So let's go start with number 10. Verse number 10 says this, "'Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you search intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow.'" It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Let's pause right here. Peter is literally answering our question for us. He says, concerning this salvation, right? With everything that we've talked about, everything that you've learned, everything that I have spent the last few weeks talking about, know this, he says, all of the prophets, everything that you know about the Old Testament, even if we were to put this in the context of Peter's audience, he would say, everything you Jews know about the scriptures, the law, the prophets, all of this was to point you to Jesus. Alright, so if we go back through our Old Testament, Genesis says that he would be from the tribe of Judah. Numbers says that he would be a descendant of Jacob. Second Samuel says he'd be an heir to David's throne. Isaiah calls him Emmanuel, born of a virgin, and he would become a suffering servant. Hosea said that he would spend time in Egypt. Psalm says that he would be rejected by his people. Jeremiah says that he would bring a new covenant. Deuteronomy says that he would be a prophet like Moses. Zechariah says that he would be pierced and he would come in riding on a donkey. Malachi says that he would be preceded by a messenger. We know that to be John the Baptist. And Micah says that he would be born in Bethlehem. These are just a few of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, of the Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. And Peter's saying here, listen, everything that you know about Scripture... Everything that we know about the Old Testament points to one person and that person is Jesus. Do you know of all the prophecies in the Old Testament, how many Jesus did not fulfill? None of them. He, he fulfilled all of the prophecies in the Old Testament, right? Everything that said about the coming Messiah, Jesus was, and things that he had absolutely no control over, right? Whenever it says that he's going to come out of Egypt, Hosea says he'll be drawn out of Egypt. Jesus didn't have any control over that. When Mary and Joseph fled to Egypt to get away from Herod, killing all the babies, he didn't have any control over that. He, he didn't have control over being pierced. He didn't have control over being born in Bethlehem. This is how God orchestrates everything in the Old Testament to point to the person of Jesus. This goes all the way through Emmanuel, the perfect sacrifice, preaching righteousness to Israel, teaching in parables, ministry beginning in Galilee, Redeemer of the Gentiles, setting the captives free, being betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, over and over and over The Old Testament continues to point to Jesus being the Messiah. This is really, I told you guys, when we started all this, we were working points, right? Remember the first sermon was point number one, the second sermon is point number two. This is really kind of like my last thought. Those of you who've been around long enough know that I like to give you a couple of points and I give you one big wrap-up. This is the big wrap-up, okay? But there's a couple of points in my wrap-up. So point number one for today is the entire Bible, is one continuous story of Jesus. The entire Bible is one continuous story. Yes, we have stories about Moses. We have stories about Abraham. We have stories about Noah. We have stories about the prophets. And we know about what happened with Samuel and David and Jonathan and Saul. We know about how the kingdom split and all that kind of stuff. But if you read from Genesis all the way through, it's all one continuous story of Jesus. It's absolutely, think about it like this, it's absolutely ridiculous that the Christian founding fathers, the early Christian church, would take their foundational documents, right, their faith-determining eyewitness documents, and attach them to another religion's documents, writings, and foundational scriptures, unless... They saw theirs as a fulfillment and a continuation of the other. Meaning this, the only reason why our Christian writings, what we call the New Testament, is attached to the Hebrew Bible. If you talk to a Jew right now, they'd say, your Testament, our Bible, right? They, they, they wholly stand on the Old Testament, the only reason why our New Testament is attached to the Old Testament, which was a set document of Scripture, it was, it's been set for thousands of years, right? The only reason why we have the two of them together is because we believe that one fulfills the other, that we believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah and the son of God that the Old Testament talks about over and over and over again. And when you begin to look and you begin to see all the prophecy that was spoken about, it only points to one person and that's Jesus. That's the only reason why we have the New Testament and the Old Testament in one document, because we believe as Christians that our writings fulfill the Hebrew Bible. It's all put together. Everything that the Old Testament says about the coming Messiah, was fulfilled in and through Jesus. And Peter's saying here that they, these, these prophets, they spent their whole life looking and investigating when and how this was gonna come, when and how the suffering and the glories would be revealed, right? The crucifixion and the resurrection. And then look what he says in verse 12, we just read it. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. When they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. Can you even really grab on to the magnitude of that statement that the prophets, the literal mouthpieces of God throughout the whole Old Testament understood that the majority of their prophecies were not for their own benefit, but they were for future generations As a matter of fact, Daniel, Daniel has a vision of a man. It says he was dressed in linen. He had a a belt of the finest gold, right? And he describes, he says, his body was like crystal, the face of lightning. Eyes were like torches and arms and legs of bronze. And it says his voice was the sound of the multitude. And we all see that and we go, that's Jesus, right? This is a vision that he had of Jesus standing there. This is Daniel chapter 10, verse 14. And this is what... The man Daniel saw said, he said, Now I've come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future. For the vision concerns a time yet to come. Listen, everything that Daniel wrote down after that, he knew he was not gonna benefit from. He knew it wasn't gonna be for him. It was gonna be for the future. These things are gonna happen in the future. Daniel, you're probably not gonna be here for this. I'm gonna give you something that will deeply impact what happens generations from now. And this leads me to my second point this morning. What if, what if what we've been discussing has a generational impact on your family? What if as we approach this idea and the topic of salvation in such a manner that we we made it the primary conversation in our homes, that we did everything possible to make sure that every one of our loved ones knew that they knew that they knew that they were saved? What if we as a church who are gathered here or maybe even watching online, what what if we never received another benefit of salvation, outside of our eventual glorification, because we know that's promised, right? We talked about that last week. If you never receive another blessing of a life devoted to Jesus, but your family, your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids, all witness the example of your faith, of your devotion, of your love for Christ, that they, through the example that you set for them, begin to understand who Jesus is and put their hope and faith in him. Church, would you do it? Would that be enough? If everything that we've learned is for future generations, would impact the rest of your family for the rest of their life, would you continue to live this out? For most of us, we'd say, yeah, absolutely. Why would we not? Then my question to you is, why, when things get hard, why do we run from God? Why do we blame God and even say things like, Why, God, after everything I've done for you, would you let this happen to me? We 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 desire that benefit. We desire that bonus in that relationship. But what if everything we did was not for ourselves, but for others? Church, these prophets, their work. Their work was not serving themselves, but us. Remember, remember Hebrews chapter 11, right? We can go back to Hebrews 11. We've, we've, I've even preached this before. This is the heroes of the faith passage, right? It talks about Abraham and Moses and Daniel and Samuel and uh, Jephthah and, uh, and Samson and all these guys. And it says this at the end of all of that, Hebrews 11, 39 and 40 says, these all, were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, God had planned something better for us so that together with us they may be made perfect. Abraham, Moses, David, Samuel. They they talked about and they wrote and they they talked about the Messiah that was going to come. They never got to experience him because God had a better plan because we get to benefit from them. What if, church, what if we... And the future generations of our family benefit from our understanding and our application of what we've learned over the last month when it comes to salvation and applying that to our life. Are you willing to set the example for future generations? The prophets were. And I love that last phrase and at the end of verse 12. It says, even angels long to look into these things, right? Uh, We don't have time to get into Christian angelology. We don't have time to dive into that. Uh, Goodness, we could go down a rabbit hole real fast with angelology and study of what angels are and and what they mean. Just know this, okay? Here's the most important thing you need to know about angels. Number one, they are not eternal. And number two, they are not omniscient, which means they don't know all things. And so right here, what, what Peter is saying is that we possess this relationship with God through the Holy Spirit that they never will. And they would love. To, to look into this. They would love to understand God on that level. They would love to know this kind of stuff. That's incredible. It's an incredible statement. Then here's the hook for this whole morning. Let's keep reading. Verse 13, the preparation, right? So this is where we've titled this. This is where we're going. Uh, 1 Peter 1:13 says this. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set that your hope fully on the grace to be given to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as you, he ha- has called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it's written, be holy because I am holy. Therefore, he says, because you know all this about salvation. Since we just got through talking about all of this. All the <laughs> prophets have spoken about it. If it's for your benefit, prepare your minds for action. I love this, if you have a King James Version Bible, it says this, gird up the loins of your mind, right? Nobody talks like that anymore, it's incredible. I, I, I wanted for us all to look at each other and go, gird up the loins of your mind, right? Because it's just this kind of like, get yourself ready. I almost expect Peter to say, I almost get to get ready to fight. Right? Get in a defensive stance. Get, prepare your body for attack. But he says, prepare your minds for action. This is really the only time this phrase is used in the New Testament. One commentary I read said this, the mind is a reflective faculty. The Christian must reflect and that with intense exertion of thought on the glory of his hopes. On the greatness of his responsibilities. So, in other words, point number three this morning is get ready to think back. Get ready to think back. Think back about the security you have in Christ's justification. Think back about the sanctification in your life, how you're consistently progressing in your Christ likeness, right? Think back about the hope that you have and the promise of the glorification. Get ready. Prepare for the action of remembrance. For the action of thinking back. It's incredible because the most active thing a believer can do, the most prepared thing that we can do, and the best way to put our faith into action is to remember the salvation that we securely hold on to. Remember Gird the loins of your minds, right? Remember what you already have. Remember the hope of salvation. Remember the past and the present and the promise that is yours. And now prepare your minds for action. How do we do that? Peter answers that. He says, Be self controlled. Set your hope on grace. Do not conform to evil desires and be holy. So let's do this. Let's just run through this list and then we're going to be done. This is kind of my last thought through all this, but let's, let's kind of work our way through these four ways he tells us to prepare our minds. Number one is to be self-controlled. This phrase self-control or self-controlled occurs 13 times in the, new, in the NIV Bible, 13 times. Over and over again, it's in the qualifications that we have for pastors and deacons, right? Uh, and every one of those that says he has to be self control and alert and all that kind of stuff. Matter of fact, it's even listed in Titus 2 when it talks about older women teaching younger women to be self-controlled, right? It's this idea of being able to act and think and speak and reason and process correctly. When we reflect on our salvation, it leads us to be self controlled. Because number one, we don't, we don't overinflate our self worth, right? We don't overinflate how incredible we think we are. And number two, it also keeps us from devaluing ourselves. And, and forgetting that we are a royal priesthood, a chosen people, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, right? We, we understand our role as the beneficiary of salvation and not the agent of salvation. We are self-controlled. We can focus on what matters most. All these things, all these distractions, all these secret sin struggles, all those rabbits that our minds can chase, and we have all those pretend conversations. Those are all gone because we are self-controlled. We're we're under we're able to process and reason and speak and think and all that kind of stuff correctly because we've prepared our minds. We've gotten all that stuff kind of kind of locked down and we're 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 doing good because we're self-controlled. The second thing he tells us to do is to set our hope on grace. I like this because it doesn't say hope for the grace. Right, as in like, uh, I may not get it, I may get it, I don't know, we'll see, you know, who knows, we're kind of hoping for it, but we don't really know how it's gonna shake, shake out. It says, hope on the grace. The only other time this phrase is used in the same kind of context in scripture is when in 1 Timothy chapter five, verse five, when Paul is writing Timothy and he tells him about widows and how to, how to help take care of widows and, and those who are in need. And he says this to him. this is so great. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. That same phrase is what Peter says right here when he says that we put our hope in grace. It's just, it's just like, like I'm, not, I'm not hoping that God's going to come through for me. I know he's going to come through for me. I'm not hoping for grace that he's going to give me. I know that he's going to give me grace. He's, he was setting our hope on the grace that is to come, right? You see the difference? There's assurance here. There's no question. It's a mindset that we put our hope on the grace that we know we're going to get. That's preparing our minds. So we, we set our hope on grace. We are self-controlled. And then the third one, don't conform to evil desires. We, as a matter of fact, if you're part of our defined Bible study this week, we just talked about this. I, I taught, um, I taught the, the adult one, the teen boys one, and the kids one on the, on the session on sin, being broken by sin, right? And, and what did we read? We read James chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. It says this, talking about how God doesn't tempt us. We're talking about what about the sin that just kind of falls into our lap and God's tempting us with sin. He doesn't do that. And James really clearly says that. And he says, you need to know this, verse 14. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire, he's dragged away and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin when it's full grown gives birth to death. It all starts with our own evil desire. And here Peter's telling us to, to not conform to those evil desires. Every sin starts in the minds first. In our own evil desire. It's a thought process. It's a maligned mental path that we go down. It's this want to before it's an action. No wonder, Peter says, set your minds to action, to gird the loins of your mind. He's saying, listen, watch what you think about. Don't give in to that evil desire. Don't go down that path in your head. And if we're, listen, for all of us in this room and even for those watching online this morning, it could be a number of different things, those evil desires, right? It could be sexual, it could be material, it could be vengeful, right? But each one leads to action, Action leads to sin, and sin leads to death. He says you got to not conform to those evil desires. You gotta get that stuff out. You gotta you gotta you gotta gird the loins of your mind. You gotta set your minds to action. I'm reading a book right now by Tony Evans. Most of y'all got know who Tony Evans is, an incredible uh, speaker and author and pastor. And it's, it's, a, it's a book entitled No More Excuses. It's, it's meant, written specifically to men uh, and how we as men need to step up and uh, lead our families and live our lives in, uh, you know, in such an incredible manner that we don't make excuses for ourselves or for the things that we do. And in one part, he's talking about the after effect of sin, about when we do mess up and when we do give in what Peter would say these evil desires. The thing that follows that is a word that we're all very familiar with, and it's called shame, right? We give in to this evil desire, and, and then we carry around a burden and a responsibility of, of shame. And as a matter of fact, he draws a correlation back to the original sin with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, right? And, and it says that... Um, when sin entered, they realized that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Y'all remember that? That's Genesis chapter three, verse seven. And God comes along and he asks this incredible question, where are you? And Adam says, I'm hiding. And he said, how did you know? You know who told you that you, you, you were naked and that kind of stuff? And Tony Evans says this, it's so great. He says, that, those fig leaves, that's shame. That's what shame is. That's what shame does. And he says this, you know what fig leaves are? This is a quote straight from that book. Fig leaves are religion. Fig leaves are efforts to be nice or to have popularity. Fig leaves are attempts to hide behind the name of God. Today, many men hide in the church. And they think that by putting on their ties and coming to church and putting in their their time will make all the other sinful things they're doing okay. Listen, guys, some of y'all have given in to these evil desires and you're carrying around a few fig leaves. And you're thinking, maybe if I just come or maybe if I just do or maybe if I just give or maybe if I just serve, I'm I'm going to get rid of this shame. But we've got to set our minds correctly to not be conformed to the evil desires. We've got to get rid of that stuff. And we've got to stop carrying the shame. Here's my last one and I'll be done. Be self-controlled, put our hope on the grace, don't conform to evil desires. And the last one is to be holy. And I know I read that. Many of y'all go, wow, thanks. That really helps me in my daily life just to be holy, right? I I love this. How many of y'all feel like you're holy? Anybody here feel holy? Probably not many, right? Uh, Because this is Peter. He's using the Old Testament law. He's quoting Leviticus here, right? That be holy because I am holy. That's in Leviticus. And he's challenging us. To be holy, to live set apart, to live such lives that are so abnormal to society, so counter cultural, that we're committing to be holy because He is holy. And if our whole life is to be more like Him, then why wouldn't we be holy, right? But the problem is, and the reality is, we can't. We can't be holy. That Greek word holy is hagias. It's a great word. If you have times to do Bible study words, you know, uh, study on different words of the Bible, you should do a word on uh, hagias because it's just, it just simply means the most holy thing. It's used 229 times in the New Testament and over 90 of those times, it's referring to the Holy Spirit, right? Or the Holy Ghost, okay? And so when we talk about the Holy Spirit, it's the most holy thing. And here, Peter's saying, be holy, because he's holy. And we read that, we go, there's no way I can do it. But this verse changes from a challenge to a recognition of what we already have. You don't feel holy join the crowd. None of us do, right? But if you're saved, you are holy. It isn't something that you have to become. It's something that you already are. Set your mind to that because when the Holy Spirit lives in you, that makes you holy. It makes you the most holy thing. So when we set our mind, when we gird the loins of our minds to be holy, because he is holy, we've already talked about all this stuff. There's preparation that we gotta, we got to just live out what we already are. He's already made us holy. Not because of anything of us, but because of the Spirit of God that lives in us is holy. And if he lives in me, then I am holy. Not because of Matt overall, not because of anything that I've done, but because I possess the Holy Spirit. He's already holy. I'm already holy. I just have to live it out. So church, when he says there's a preparation, prepare your minds. There's something that we have to do. We have to live this out. To live out the spirit that's living in you. Be holy because you already are. Because he has always been. Isn't that incredible? Listen, when we think about our responsibility in light of the past and the present and the promise of salvation, there's a preparation that we have to do. We have to live, we have to prepare, we have to gird up the loins of our mind, and we have to do these four very simple things. The question is, church, are you willing to be holy? Are you willing to live above the standard? Are you willing to raise the bar in your life? Because the Spirit of God that lives in you is holy and He's pushing us. He's just pushing us to live up, to live holy, to be holy like him. I'll ask if you would just stand and bow your head. TJ's going to come back up here as the band gives a little bit of an invitation this morning. It's very simple. If you're willing to live it, if you're willing to do it, then you have to commit and you have to take the steps to pull it out. You have to, you have to submit and you have to come underneath his holiness and you just have to live it out. Church, if you want to do that, this morning's your opportunity. Maybe, maybe some of you are saying, listen, I'm not holy. I get it but he is. And if he's living in me, then I'm going to start living by that. Now that we understand everything that we understand about salvation, why would we not live it out every day of our life? If you need to come and you need to talk to me about anything that's going on in your life, you're welcome to do that. If you want to join the church, if you want to talk about what it means to be a follower of Christ or even following baptism, listen, this is your opportunity. Don't miss today. Don't write yourself off because you're not holy. Because if you're a child of God, you are. If you are not, then you can be. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you for this morning and we thank you for the truth of this passage that we're supposed to set our minds to action, God, because it all starts with how we think and how we process, how we depend on, how we live out the salvation that we've been given so freely in you. Father, this morning, if there's somebody here that, that doesn't quite understand how this all plays together and how we could ever really set our minds to action, how we could ever be self-controlled, how we could ever be holy, how we could ever resist the evil desires, God, how we could ever do all these things. God, I just pray that in this moment that you would speak to them, you give them boldness to step out, God, to ask questions. Our Father, really just to even bow in your presence and ask for help, God. You are willing to reach out and to help us. God, we are yours and we are dependent on you. By the work through this moment, it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.